As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full of I think I'm full of Shit, I was so full of Yeah, I was so full of I think I'm full of I think you're full of I think you're full of Shit Welcome everyone to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm here with my good friend Mark Bigney, and my name is Michael Walker. We are a board gaming podcast in which we talk about board games. Mark, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Walker. How are you? I am fantastical. So on this show, we are going to talk about the games we played this week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and the main game of the week, which is Perseverance. Mark, what did you play this week? I played another game of Planet Unknown. Planet Unknown is the Lazy Susan-driven polyomino science fiction game, which manages to be simultaneously very spatially puzzly and very focused on tracks, and yet nonetheless very, very pleasing to me. Introduced it to a new player, and I played by the two-player rules. Initially, I was a little bit concerned, because one of the key choices in a multiplayer game is at the top of your turn when you're the leader, you get to pick from any set of tiles you want. You effectively get a free pick, and then everyone else is just, as a consequence, stuck with a choice of two piles that end up in front of them, courtesy of the Lazy Susan. In two players, instead, what you do is you just rotate clockwise one segment each time. And I was a little bit worried that that lack of choice would feel constraining or limiting in terms of the game. It didn't. It was an interestingly different challenge, knowing that every round you would have a fixed set of choices, and indeed you could, if you were so inclined, look forward to subsequent segments and know what tiles you could choose from going forward. So that was just an interesting difference. And I also got to try a different corporation, because again, one of the things that surprised me was how asymmetrical the different corporations are, and how they have a different set of timing puzzles about what you want to unlock when. Well, I want to drive up the tech track to level two at least, and then I need to pump the civilization track and then the biomass track because of all these other things. But of course, you can never do things exactly as you want, so it's effectively a question of prioritization in terms of laying different tiles out. And the fact that there's so many of them. 
yes, a huge variety of corporations. I still haven't even touched the asymmetric planets because there's a large variety of those as well. They remind me a little bit of some of the different ships in Galaxy Trucker where you look at them and say, that seems like a wild challenge. And then you somehow manage to struggle through if you know what you're doing, which I emphatically do not in Planet Unknown. Because although, as I say, it's a spatial puzzle that I enjoy, I'm still not any good at it. <laughs> I played on the planet that was poison gas. So as you roamed around, you had to make sure the rover didn't stop in, in most of your map. You had to sort of like terraform it out and cover up all the poisonous gas so then and sort of make little short missions out with your rover. It was like super fun. Mm. Well, I played as a corporation that allowed you to drown in biomass tiles, which is to say these one-by-one little square tiles that you could pop in at the end of the game, more or less, wherever you wanted. It was the corporation made for Mark. It's the, oh, you're not good at making things fit together properly? Here, have a whole bunch of cheats so you can fudge your way through. It was great. (laughs) I gotta say that in terms of free choice of corporations, if I ever wanted to play competitively, which is almost never my priority in terms of playing games. I would absolutely pick that corporation 10 times out of 10. But as it is, as I say, I'm really enjoying exploring this space. I've always enjoyed polyomino games, whether the polyomino element is kind of a sideshow, as it is in something like A Feast for Odin and a lot of other Uwe Rosenberg games, or if the game is bone simple, as in the case of Baron Park. I I just seem to enjoy it because it's a kind of tiling that I find pleasant. And I have to say that Planet Unknown is a little bit more complex in terms of, again, managing these different tracks and the different kind of puzzles operate uh, offered by the asymmetry. And I have to say that the components, although m- very much overproduced, at the very least are functionally overproduced. More on that later. And so I re- I'm really enjoying my time with Planet Unknown. Is it worth a large amount of money? Eh, it is definitely the case that it is a symptom of the kind of overproduction, high ticket value, very, very expensive, large number of components things that you will find from Kickstarter. As I said, it's very much a Kickstarter design, and the deluxe version is not something that I could necessarily justify as a purchase. That having been said, I'm kind of glad I have it. I don't know how, whether it's going to hit retail and so for how much money, uh, but it is a very expensive niche product. But that having been said, I think that even though I can't necessarily condone that kind of commercial development, I am enjoying the, the, the fruits of it. So as, as per usual, I am self-contradictory and hypocritical to the max. So that's Planet Unknown by Ryan Lambert and Adam Rayberg. Published by Adam's Apple Games. I played a game called Carnegie, and I've talked about Carnegie before because they did a great job when this Kickstarter came out. They made the board game arena implementation available immediately. So people have been playing Carnegie for quite a while, but the actual physical uh, game came out just this week. So we got together and we got to play an actual game, and I enjoyed it. The, The quality of the game itself is over the top. Unlike uh, Wonderland's War, everyone gets their own pieces in the little, you know, uh, game trays, everything they need, even starting resources, all of their pieces. You simply open up the board and you can almost start playing. Even the the player boards have the little slot where the, the sort of the upgrade sliders go in so you don't actually have to balance them under your board as you're playing. Everything about it, top notch. So what you're doing in Carnegie is this constant balance. You're making sure that the board is populated with your meeples out on missions because when income is called in certain regions, you only get it if you call a meeple back. You're making sure all your action spaces are populated because you don't want an action to go by and not do anything because there's a, you know only 20 actions in the game and either you're doing something or you've completely wasted that turn. Love everything about Carnegie. 
definitely give it a try if you have the opportunity. This is designed by Xavier George and published by Quinted Games. I was quite impressed when they continued to refine the game because, I mean, I, I don't mean to damn with faint praise, right? You should continue to refine a game even after crowdfunding is done. But they've already gone to the bother of having a fully functional, fleshed out board game arena implementation at the start of the Kickstarter campaign. Tabletop simulator mods, that's one thing, but a fully implemented board game arena adaptation is quite another. And yet, despite that, in response to a large player base of playtesting, they changed quite a bit about the mechanisms. And having played it once very early on, and there were a couple things that felt a little unbalanced maybe a little bit clunky. I'm looking forward to seeing the fin- the finished version. Yeah, because it's a very controlled environment, Board Game Arena. When there's bugs, it all goes immediately back. The community there is well interested in making the game more playable, and they're going to add feedback that makes it available to the designers. You know, I mean? Whereas Tabletop Simulator, it's, you know, almost... Seems I don't want to say it seems like pirating, but you know you're sort of playing it on the side. <laughs> well, it's you know the what Wild mean? It, it just seems it seems it seems removed. You know what I mean? It seems Precisely. one step removed. And you don't have a whole bunch of data immediately evident. I don't know to what degree they engage in big data analysis, but if people play a game five thousand times on Tabletop Simulator, you don't know who won. <laughs> you have no idea what the final scores were. But if people play a game five thousand times on Board Game Arena, you know exactly what the final scores were, and you can go check the logs if you're so inclined. I don't know if Quinted Games did this, but it is certainly uh, a resource that is available to them if they're interested in using that kind of data for the purposes of balancing and fine tuning. Yeah, and the replayability of Carnegie is huge because, as you know, there are like all sorts of buildings, and I, I love how they did that system. It's like sort of like action selection. It's like you populate all of these offices with your meeples and when that particular action is triggered you get to you get to trigger that action as many times as you have meeples in those offices so i love that they have a whole different set of office tiles that you can put in there's this whole system of uh, purchasing donations that are end game scoring and there's a whole you know tile set that you can use to cover up and change that completely up as well So looking forward to more games of Carnegie for sure. The office upgrades were the one element of Carnegie that I didn't thoroughly appreciate, precisely because it's the kind of thing where you feel like looking at this incredible array of upgrades available to you. If you really want to play optimally, which again is not a drive I've strongly internalized, but a lot of people do, you really should be keeping those in mind right from the first turn. But that's not the kind of planning that I appreciate in your games. I'd rather things be a little bit more dynamic, not necessarily chaotic, but a little bit more dynamic. Then again, a lot of other people really prefer things to work that way. So I'll be interested to see with, again, a few tweaks here and there to the way the different actions worked and to presumably how the offices are. I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting Carnegie. There's a couple games that triple down on that. Orleans and Caverna, right? Both Precisely. games that have a gigantic gigantic number of buildings that you can add and they're almost all available right from the beginning and there's just no way for new players or even off and on players to process all of that information at the beginning. Absolutely. And in a game like Carnegie where the big scoring bonuses are visible from the start. That I appreciate, right? The donations that you can purchase in Carnegie, there's a smaller number of them, they're easier to understand, and they're very much tied to endgame achievements effectively. That level of foreknowledge is very much appreciated. And if that were introduced randomly over the course of the game, that would that could be quite unbalanced. Like, wait, five points for this thing? Oh, I just happen to have lots of them. Great, I guess I win. 
as opposed to a dizzying array of upgrades. You know, there are happy mediums, and again, we can return as per usual to the classic Caverna versus Agricola debate, <laughs> but there's there's certainly a, a balance to be struck, and for me personally, I think that Carnegie went a little bit too far in the, you better know what all these are at the start of the game, but again... I'll see how that shakes out of the final version. So there's two things I like about the donations. One is that they cap the points at 12. So people that do know the game can't abuse them. Secondly, lots of games give you bonuses for having a bunch of money and just resources at the end. In uh, Carnegie, you have to make sure you purchase that donation in order to make those things worth points. And usually there is a building that will dictate otherwise, but usually only one person can have these donations. And that's Carnegie. I'm also interested in revisiting the game now that I, my, my thoughts about Carnegie and his legacy are a little bit more settled and see, uh, see to what extent the game wants to just whitewash things, but we'll see. It's true. The proper enunciation is Carnegie, but everyone else uses Carnegie, so that's why I just went with the common pronunciation. That is not at all what I was talking about, but also a good point. Played another game of Imperium Legends. So the Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends both have an excellent solo mode. This is despite the fact that Imperium was designed by Nigel Buckle and David Surtze, the latter of which seems to have designed almost every solo mode under the sun for Euros. And with a couple of very rare exceptions, more on them later, I have yet to enjoy any of them. But Imperium is one of those rare exceptions. It's a very, very simple AI where you flip over a card from the AI's deck and it will tell you what it's supposed to do with it. Most of the time it's a very simple operation and so you get to spend, this is a wild concept walker, you get to spend your time thinking about your moves rather than thinking about how to execute the AI's move. While I, that, I, I, no. I, I don't even know what no. to say about that. That's just, if you're not wrestling with the AI solo system yeah. for like 90% of the game, yeah. unplayable. Misplaced priorities. It's even at the case where, Walker, I can even remember from turn to turn what I am planning on doing. So I can execute what's called a strategy. It, uh, utterly not, utter nonsense, I know. And uh, this time I played as the Chin Empire. I'd never played as them before. And they have a very, very interesting balancing act between different mandates that they can play. There are a variety of cards that exclude other cards. There's a card that issues a penalty, but if they don't have it out in play, they can't play out a lot of other powerful cards. And is a, gives them a penalty of victory points at the end of the game isn't in play. This is specifically the Mandate of Heaven. Really, really very interesting. Unfortunately, though, the AI just by random purchases, lucked into a strategy that completely kneecapped me. The way the AI opponent, I was playing against the Greeks, every time they play a combat card, I would have to recall a what's called a pinned card or an infinite card, one of the cards that stays out in your tableau. Because unlike a lot of other deck builders, in Imperium, you get a lot of cards that go out in your tableau. You can build an engine, you can put out colonies or regions, a whole bunch of other interesting things going on. Because it really is an elaboration on fundamental deck building elements. And for the Chin, this is a serious, serious problem. They get victory points at the end of the game based on the number of pinned cards they have in play. A number of their strategies rely on synergizing with a variety of other pinned cards. And the Greeks were just drowning in these cards that constantly set me back to square one. And as a result, I got completely blown out of the water. Despite this, I still nonetheless had a, a pretty good time of it. It wasn't quite as frustrating as, you know, that game of Sentinels of the Multiverse where the villain is constantly undercutting your permanence or an engine building game where your engine is constantly being destroyed arbitrarily. And that's because Imperium is still dynamic enough that I was able to get some things to get going. It's not that I was completely undermined. It's just I had to constantly focus on what aspect of my infrastructure I needed to keep and what aspects I was willing to let go on a constant level. 
I thoroughly enjoy Imperium. The scoring is a bit of a bear, but I will once again give a shout out to the most excellent scoring app that is available online. It is equipped with OCR, so you can just upload pictures of your tableau and it will score things automatically for you, which is great. Uh, especially because the most cumbersome aspect of playing a solo game of Imperium is having to do scoring twice, once for you and one for the, once for the AI. And I don't pull out Imperium often enough, largely because it's a very, very narrow player count game. It's best at one, two, maybe three, if everyone knows what they're doing. And because Walker is a poo-poo head who doesn't thoroughly enjoy it. So I really like the variety. I really like the artwork. I really like the thematic integration. I, I released an editorial about how I think that Imperium is actually one of the best themed civilization games out there. Especially since most civilization games, I think the theming is quite bad. And so I'm always happy to go back to Imperium. I, th I think it's probably my favorite of David Churze's designs, and it makes me very, very curious to see more output from Nigel Buckle. This was put up by Osprey, Imperium Legends, and by extension, Imperium Classics. Mark, I got Titan to the table. Titan, the, to the, the toy game. The <laughs> giant mining disc with these giant sort of factories, they call them... Uh, uh, rigs, these giant mining rigs. So what you're doing... But in are Titan, they giant water? Yeah, well, when you compare them to other gaming pieces, they are also giant. So there is a lot of interesting decision spaces in Titan. So right off the beginning, you're choosing these rigs and you're... Every turn, this is every turn, you get to choose a rig and put it on the board and you're usually covering up some resources or in some cases, you, you're not covering up resources. But this is going to fill your dropship and your, and your dropship has four spaces because every round has four turns. So if you're picking up two resources, then you're going to fill the rest of your dropship with two pipes. If you pick up no resources, then you're going to get four pipes. So picking up resources, fill the rest with pipes. And then when it's your turn, you're either simply taking resource and putting it into your hold. Not much to that action. You still get to move your drones around the board. But placing a pipe opens up a whole plethora of other actions. So you're placing a rig and they're numbered zero through five and they're going to get you that many victory points. The offset is that if you take, it's going to be filled with as many red cubes, which are bad cubes, as points you get. So if you take a five, it gets five bad cubes. If you take a zero, it gets five good cubes. So no matter what, it's going to get five cubes, just the point value is going to be either good or bad. And you're placing them on the board and it's very strategic, you know, trying to get it close to ones that you already have or putting the bad ones, you know, to block other people. And then deciding how many pipes you're going to need for that turn. Because you need pipes because you have to create these networks that go down to the core. They get you more good cubes. You want to... And then when you place the pipe, it activates the rig that it's adjacent to. To put it simply. And then it also will activate all of the rigs of that color that are connected in your network. So it's cool combos going off. And then at the end of the round, if you've upgraded some of the rigs, all of the upgraded rigs will suck resources up into your, into your hold. There's two different kinds of resources. Like I said, there's the bad cubes and the good cubes that are out on the board. And then when you activate the rigs, they produce their own type of resource that are never on the board. There's like five different colors. They don't go on the board. They just go right from activating rigs into your supply. There's contracts that you fulfill. There's goals that you need to fulfill. Lots going on. 
looking forward to playing again. It was our first play at two. And I really don't think it's designed for only two players because you need that interaction with blocking and interesting networks and and triggering off of each other. Because if you upgrade, because none of the rigs belong to anyone, right? You get to activate whatever rigs you like. You are allowed to personally upgrade a rig. It means it has like a module that is yours. So if someone else uses it, then you get to trigger that part of it. Other than that, interesting stuff going on. Interesting stuff with the drones because you have... Uh, four drones that are all numbered. So when you're doing that turn, you get to move, you know, drone one and turn one, so on and so forth. And you get to do very devious things with these drones, like dropping bad cubes into people's hold, dropping bad cubes into rigs, blocking them from getting good cubes, all sorts of fun and interesting stuff, blowing up people's pipes, upgrading rigs, Titan. It was designed by Matthew Podvin and published by Holy Grail Games. Can't wait to introduce you to this game. So I have a question. I have seen pictures to scale. When you first unboxed the thing, you showed me pictures of the the components, the board especially. And I thought I understood the scale until you put your arm in the same shot. And I realized that this was a truly massive, massive endeavor. Are the components relevant to gameplay or could the entire thing have been replicated with cardboard and shits? 100% 100% could have been replicated to something more manageable oh, well. and easy. Would it have been more as interesting? Would it have been as cool? <laughs> no. Oh, no question. I, I no way want to throw cold water on your appreciation of the coolness. Remember what I said about Planet Unknown? I am the guy who expressed enthusiasm for Massive Darkness 2 over the course of the past few weeks. I completely understand. I was just hoping that there was some cool physical gimmick, like even Gutenberg has, right? Anytime there's, you're going to have cool components and they have some sort of physical gimmick involved, then I'm definitely more uh, on board. Because yes, uh, so in a, as an example of a midway point between the two, of course, there's Planet Unknown's Lazy Susan. We've commented, our, both of us, how it could have been replicated by a static display and you just move an indicator around the edge to indicate which lot you can pick from. But it is cooler to be able to rotate a physical Lazy Susan to just have your tiles in front of you. And Would I have thought it really, really awesome if the plastic rigs or if there were plastic pipes that literally connected to things and it was just a physical gimmick and it's like, well, you can lay pipes however you want so long as they don't cross other plastic pipes and there's this 3D element or something, just hypothetically. I would have totally been down for that. There is is a very minor 3D element. One, the rigs have cups so they hold all all of the cubes. Great. Two, the pipes. There are there are pipes that go along the outside ring, you know what I mean, you know, to join the, the things that are in the rig, but then you have to bore down. So there's slots in the side walls where you where you push pipes in to go down as well. Okay. So there is a 3D element, but very minor. Sure. But it is purely a toy factor rather than a gameplay determinative factor. 100%. And, that and that's is why fine. I backed that's it. fine. <laughs> yeah, that is also fine. Uh, so, Walker, I don't know if you've been checking the weather reports lately, uh, specifically the weather reports for Perdition, but I can report that the weather reports for Perdition indicate that last week it was uh, negative degrees Celsius because hell has frozen over because I got Hour of Need. And Hour of Need is the latest and quite possibly the last modular deck system game by the Sadler Brothers, in part because modular deck system I think is owned by Blacklist Games and neither of the Sadler Brothers work for Blacklist Games anymore. It had a somewhat troubled distribution 
largely because it sat in a warehouse at Quartermaster Logistics since November because Blacklist Games had not paid their bill. And understandably, Quartermaster Logistics were ill-inclined to send me Hour of Need because they had not been paid. I do not blame Quartermaster Logistics. I don't even really blame Blacklist Games for not being able to pay their bill. I blame them for basically lying to me about why the games were coming, but that's neither here nor there. Hour of Need is a game I've played a couple of times already on Tabletop Simulator, in earlier form, many cards not having art. And the physical version finally having arrived, I can say that it is very, very much the same experience that I remember it being on Tabletop Simulator, which is to say, it is kind of a distillation of the modular deck system into something that is simultaneously among the simplest of the systems, but also among the most open of the systems. And I could go into great, great detail about the evolution of the modular deck system, and indeed I might record an editorial talking about the various games and the evolution of the system, but suffice to say that when it began as a very, very close ripoff, I mean copy, I mean homage, of Sentinels of the Multiverse, where it followed very much the same structure in that you get to play one card, you get to activate one card, and that is your turn. We've now evolved into a situation where you just get to do some number of actions, and there are a variety of different kinds of things you can do for an action, among them playing cards, drawing cards, moving, etc., etc. So you don't have fixed phases, you can do them however you like, Hour of Need doubles down on this. You don't even have any fixed turn structure. I can take one action, then you can take two, and then Huey can take one, and then I can take my second, etc. And that degree of freedom and latitude, I very much appreciate. And it allows them to do other things with their card system. When the cards are just hived off to their own section, you only ever draw one card per round, you only ever play one card per round, then that kind of handcuffs you in terms of what you can do with your cards. In Hour of Need, the card play becomes much more salient and determinative as a consequence, I think. And unlike the prior modular deck system game that did the same thing, where you just had a set number of actions, specifically Alter Quest, you are not hampered by the strictures of the dungeon crawl. Alter Quest in many ways is the modular deck system at its most cumbersome because you had very specific spawning rules and you had a whole bunch of different moving parts about how rooms interacted with features and different villains interacting with different mobs and so on and so forth. The modular deck system as established in Hour of Need is much more straightforward, but at the same time relatively dynamic because you've got a villain that is running around and doing various schemes all over the map, simultaneously capturing civilians and spawning goons. So you have a variety of different fires you need to put out at all times. And that degree of triage, that degree of decision-making, I absolutely adore in Hour of Need. Now, sadly, you don't have the same variety in Hour of Need that you have in the other modular deck system games, by and large, because it was not as successful a Kickstarter. By this point, the writing was already on the wall, Blacklist Games already looked a little bit on the ropes when it was Kickstarted, and it just generated less enthusiasm. So you have fewer heroes, fewer environments, fewer villains, but at the same time, you still get a lot more variety than you have a lot of other games. I played Hour of Need three times solo since getting it. It feels different solo than it does multiplayer, but I don't think in a bad way. Some people I saw complaining on BoardGameGeek that it felt inferior because the villain does less, but you more frequently run out of time. I don't see this as a problem. I see this as, a, as an indication of how sturdy the fundamental design is across player counts. If you're playing four heroes, you're not going to run out of time as much because you're doing four times as many things. But as a consequence of the way the systems work, the villain will act more assiduously. So there's a basically a trade-off in terms of the player count. I don't, I, as I say, if you specifically only want to lose because the villain completes their scheme rather than a timeout, I can understand that. Thematically, it is less satisfying. But mechanically, I find it equally satisfying. And one of the hallmarks of the MDS games is that they've scaled really well from one to four as a general rule. And in point of fact, I think... 
Hour of Need is going to scale even better because of how quick it is. Four-player Street Masters can drag a little bit. Four-player Ultra Quest really drags a lot. Uh, Brook City I don't really play because I found it tedious generally in any player count and too many global modifiers. And I, I really do think that easy to execute, but at the same time flavorful and asymmetric, and it feels like superhero-y stuff. Now, as far as the quality of the superhero universe... Again, you don't have quite the same degree of variety, so it doesn't feel as fleshed out as something like Sentinels of the Multiverse, which is a shockingly compelling comics universe as far as I'm concerned. And it doesn't have the benefit of a license like you would get from a Marvel property or a DC property. Also, it's worth noting that I think that they've tried to avoid a lot of the unfortunate representations of women that you find in comic books. Some characters more successful than others. There's still a lot of skin-tight stuff and weird superhero poses that seem more designed to show off physical assets than to show off heroism. But it's not nearly as bad as, say, Street Masters was. And it's certainly not as bad as most Marvel stuff is. So... As per usual with Blacklist games, two steps forward, one step back, as, as, as far as that's concerned. Anyway, I'm going to be talking a lot more about Hour of Need as the weeks go on, because I know for a fact that Huey is salivating to try this some more. I'll absolutely show it to all the local people in Kingston who really, really like Street Masters, you among them, I suspect. And it is a compact, tight, compelling package that really makes me sad that the Sadler brothers will no longer be collaborating on future co-op designs. But if you're going to go out, you might as well go out on a high note of game design, because I think that Hour of Need really shows them at some of their most mature, developed, thoughtful game mechanisms. So that's Hour of Need by Adam and Brady Sadler, put out by Blacklist Games. Lastly for me, I got to play Get On Board New York and London. Now this is a re implementation or reprint of let's make a bus route so if you're interested at all and didn't want to pay for you know the import version this is designed by sashi and published by yellow games and it played very much like the original you are you're flipping up cards it's sort of like a flip and right you're drawing this bus route trying to pick up uh, different kinds of passengers be they students or commuters or workers or the elderly, and you're dropping them off at different locations, trying to hit your own landmarks that you need to, you know, your different locations. Ah, it's a very interesting game. Plays very quickly. It is also, they did the same sort of thing where it was put out this week, and it's also on Board Game Arena. So if you even want to give it a try, it's on there. Get on board New York and London. Has the two sides. It's not, you know, Mars on the other side, like... Uh, like the Roland Wright one, but it is uh, New York and London. <laughs> Finally for me, got to play Omicron Protocol. Omicron Protocol is a review copy sent to us by the designer. And I honestly, I, I really feel bad for these guys. So it, it's a couple of designers, Brendan Kendrick and Bernie Lynn. They kickstarted this design in late 2019. This is an intra-apocalyptic, but basically post-apocalyptic game about a virus that wipes out much of the world's population. Okay, okay, bad enough. And then they called it Omicron Protocol, which at the time, I'm sure, didn't mean anything. But now, given that it's about a virus and it's called Omicron Protocol, it is what you would best call unfortunate in terms of titling. Moving on. It is a skirmish game with miniatures where there is a third faction which is represented by the heavily infected people who have basically gone crazy. They're basically slow slash fast zombies, case depending. 
the idea is that there's this virus that works primarily on people who have cybernetic implants and they become irrationally violent when proximate to other people or when there's certain electromagnetic noise. Thematically, it works fine because the way that it works here, they, they're kind of a third-party antagonist to both sides that get more violent and more active the more things you do. So rather than a noise system, you have electromagnetic noise, some abilities trigger that, you know, it's... It, it's Firmly within the zombie genre in terms of a lot of the beats, but as filtered through a sort of cyberpunk angle. There are a number of things that you need to do when designing a skirmish game, as far as I'm concerned, in order to avoid the sort of generic sloppy skirmish game problems that a lot of things have. I will happily play a generic sloppy skirmish game once. I will seldom play one twice. I am eager to play Omicron Protocol again because they've avoided most of the problems. One of the problems is you have to strike the right balance, and this is seldom appreciated, I think. You have to strike the right balance between characters that are too generic and too specialized. There is a proper density of special abilities for characters in skirmish-type games. As an example of one where there isn't enough, I would point to a lot of the, you know, overly simplistic games like Zombicide, where you've got this one trivial special ability, which might or might not even trigger over the course of the game. Not that it's a skirmish game, but you take my point. And then on the other extreme, you have games like Malifaux, first and second edition, where you might have seven different characters, each with six or seven different special abilities, and it will be a minor miracle if you can get through an entire game remembering to execute all of them. Omicron Protocol has heavily asymmetric characters with lots of different abilities, but your squad consists of precisely two characters. And so you get a lot of the personality, a lot of the differences, and a lot of the complexity of managing a unique character, but you've only got two to worry about, and you've only got the two of your opponents to worry about. And so I felt like I was dealing with very interesting but very manageable information load. So kudos to that. The other thing that you need to avoid is having an activation system that makes you bored. An activation or execution system that is just utterly uninteresting. Omicron Protocol is just a simple I-go-you-go system, so nothing particularly striking there. But the action allocation system isn't bad. In particular, you have a certain number of action points, and the way you execute special abilities is by purchasing results from your successes. If I attack you and I get a certain number of successes, I am presented with a character-specific menu of things I can purchase with those successes. That was really cool, really interesting, and it led to a variety of very interesting situations in our game of Omicron Protocol. The final thing that a skirmish game wants to avoid is you want to either have a scenario set up or victory conditions that prevents a big scrum in the middle. We talked about this not recently, but in the context of many Warhammer derivatives. There's no reason not to have a massive scrum in the middle and you're just locked in. That's kind of what our game devolved into. You know, there was a nominally this idea of going and getting data from defeated the zombies are called sims, from defeated sims and then uploading them to a central uplink. But the uplink is in the middle, and while you're in the middle, a whole bunch of sims are going to come attack you, so there's a whole bunch of stuff to download right there, so there's no reason to leave. And so things ended up being a massive cluster in the middle. I don't know if this is a scenario problem or a gameplay system problem. And I'm sufficiently intrigued based on the successes of other elements in the gameplay that I'm willing to try some more, especially since the universe is surprisingly fleshed out. In addition to the characters being very different mechanically, uh, they've devoted a lot of effort to trying to give them personality and identity. They all have a bio on the other side of the character card, so it's not buried in a reference book somewhere. It's just there on the game components. And the record keeping is made very simple because it's all on dry erase cards. And so you don't have to worry about tracking a whole bunch of chits all over the place. It's 
relatively minimalistic as far as these things are concerned. Setup's a bit of a problem. It's the standard thing of putting out terrain tiles and then you're ready to go. But in terms of the minis load, it's a relatively low minis density game and the number of chits to manage could be a heck of a lot worse. So suffice to say, uh, despite a lot of the pitfalls of skirmish games, I think that Omicron Protocol has avoided a fair number of them. And I'm sufficiently intrigued that I'm eager to try out the solo system because there's a solo system and some of the later scenarios because it's a scenario-driven game. And I, despite my general enthusiasm for all things skirmish, I have to say that Omicron Protocol has nonetheless exceeded my expectations. And so despite the rather unfortunate naming, which again was not their fault, I feel bad for them, <laughs> I am looking forward to going back to Omicron Protocol. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark. We may not like everything that CGE puts out, but we have to agree that it is quality stuff, production-wise, playtesting-wise, and it usually gets a wide berth of people that do enjoy it. They are coming out with a new game, Starship Captains. The art and the concept look very interesting, and usually they don't uh, announce games that you know too early, so this means it's something we'll be getting relatively soon. Looking forward to trying it out, Starship Captains. I have a question about CGE, though. This is less about CGE and more about Vladikovatl. Is he just uh, resting on his codenames money? I mean, that's fine. Dude gets to rest on his codenames money if dude wants to rest on his codenames money. But is he ever going to design anything ever again? His his giant pile. If I had a giant pile of codenames money, you'd probably never hear from me again ever again. But, uh, you know. So there's something about Cor- uh, Corridor. You know, that, that wooden game, you know, it's... Yeah, the Gigantic sim- Corridor, Q-U-O-R. Yeah, very, very yeah. simplistic. You're putting the walls down. You're trying to get your meeple to the other side of the map. There's yeah, it's great. Very, very tactile about it. There's a new game coming out called Leave the Church in the Village. This is going to be put out by Clemens Gerhardt's. And it very and designed by Dieter Steen, and very much has that feel. Very minimalistic, very abstract. It has some uh, village meeples and a couple church meeples and a single deacon, and you're you're shifting the village tiles around. I didn't read the whole rule book, but it has the very you know the same sort of grid system as as corridor. Looking forward to giving it a try because I love the look of corridor. So the SDJ, the Spiel des Jahres, has put out their nominations for Game of the Year. And their nominations are Cascadia, Scout, and Top 10, the latter of which has still not been released in English, although it occurs to me I should probably just get a copy in French because you only need one person who's able to speak French and they can translate the cards and the rest can work just fine. Scout is the brilliant climbing game that I've been raving about over the course of the past few weeks, and that's personally gotten my vote. And Cascadia is the tiling game, which we both played and both thought was, you know, fine. It passes any prologue, I'd actually be pretty surprised if Cascadia doesn't win it, because it just seems to be that level of accessible and pretty and thematically appropriate that I think will appeal to the SDJ jury. But of course, I, I've been wrong about this before. They've also put out their nominations for the Kennerspiel des Jahres, which is supposed to be the game for, uh, it's translated different ways every time, the connoisseur, the gamer, the hobbyist, I don't know. The nominees being Living Forest, Cryptid, and Dune Imperium. Hello. Isn't Dune Imperium like two years old? <laughs> to be eligible for the SDJ, it is based on when it was published in Germany. Ah, see, that would make sense. Yes. Ancient. Why should we even talk about it? I, that's what I mean. That's why I brought it up. Like, gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that stink of two-year-old game all over me. Ugh. 
filth. I gotta go take right. a shower. And last thing for me, uh, Escape from New York, Mark, is a fantastic movie. Uh, Pendragon Game Studio is going to be putting out a new game based on the movie Escape from New York. Can't wait. Okay. Is it the kind of game where one person gets to be Snake Plissken, or are you all Snake Plissken? Or worse yet, or is it the af- kind of game where nobody is Snake Plissken? I'm afraid, I'm afraid only one could be Snake. But there's a couple good key characters. Cough. <laughs> oh, jeez. Look, whatever Better you want to say about John well. Carpenter and his oeuvre of movies, and whether or not you enjoy Escape from New York, I mean, come on. Clearly the best thing about Escape from New York is Snake Plissken. It's true. Escape from L.A., also also beautiful cinema. It is also a movie. I will give you that much. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game of the week, which is Perseverance Castaway Chronicles. Episode 1 and 2, that's the name of the box. We're mostly going to be talking about Episode 1, although I'll have some thoughts about Episode 2 later on. This was designed by Richard Amann, Thomas van de Ginste, Victor Peter, Wolf Planke, and David Zirkze, published by Mind Clash Games this year after a successful Kickstarter. Never heard of them. Mind Clash Games? Yes. Yeah. Well, Ginsta and Planka uh, previously designed Dragon's Gate College and Kill Shakespeare and Yedo, the latter of which Yedo, which was republished recently in a deluxe version. And I have to say that Yedo is probably one of my least favorite heavy worker placement games I've ever played. Didn't like the original version, didn't like the deluxe version, and it was perhaps what we would call foreshadowing of my experiences with Perseverance, but more on that later. Richard Amon and Victor Peter were responsible for designing both Tricarion Cerebria, the latter of which is definitely my favorite Mind Clash game, and I think truly, truly uh, an excellent Euro game to try. David Cirque, of course, is the venerable Euro game designer, despite the fact that he's only been designing for a few years, but nonetheless, when you have that much output, you get to be venerable, who designed Anachrony for Mind Clash games, as well as a whole bunch of other thing and things, and probably every solo game for every game ever. And in fact, will frequently show up on Board Game Geek telling designers that it is not too late for them to pay him to do a solo design for his game. I gotta respect the hustle. I sincerely respect the hustle. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Perseverance Castaway Chronicles? So, in Perseverance, players, in clockwise order, are choosing a die from a common pool and placing it in one of several different areas to take an action. And when that die pool dries up, the round is over. An area majority is calculated for each of those areas and the officer tiles. Votes are generated according to how many settlements are present in those areas. And whoever has the most of the area majority will get those votes. And whoever has the most votes will get the big prize. Walker, are you feeling okay? 
Now, the thing about that summary, Mark, is that it's perfect for both games. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it summarizes both of them exactly perfectly. Yes, I, I was... I- Thank you for that coda, that that little stinger, because otherwise I was a little concerned as to your mental well-being, because that was a shockingly helpful summary. But I think that, that I think, since we might as well start off with that, since you bring it up, this was marketed as two entirely different games in one box, some sort of novel experiment in publishing. It really just feels like an expansion to me, honestly. Having played both episode one and episode two, episode two just feels like what you might see in a medium box expansion to an existing game. They do not feel like radically different games to me at all. I I did get to play uh, number two, and at first I disagreed. But then after, after writing this, you know, because the actions that you take in number two do take you on a, on a different journey. And the theme is definitely different, but the fact that it all comes down to this same template, I think that I'm in 100% in your court. It really should have just been sold as an expansion because with the same, the same thing, you could almost say that Haunted Tatanica expansion is a standalone game, right? Because it's, you get a different map, there's all sorts of different rules on this map, and it just happens to share the same components, but you know, it's a standalone game. Which it really well, I, isn't, right? I could I could think of lots of comparable examples in Eurogame history. I think the Hansa Teutonica one is a good one. Uh, Voyages of Marco Polo has an expansion with a new board. A lot of different Euros have a, a new board. Great Western Trail expansion has a new board that fundamentally changes things. And even you don't even need to look outside Mind Clash's own publication history. When Anachrony was first published, when Tricarion was first published, they came with expansion modules, many of which I would argue changed the base game almost as much much, if not as much, as Perseverance Chronicles Episodes 1 and 2 do. This is not a serious critique. Mind Clash have always published games with lots of different variety out of the box. I just think they just went a little bit over their skis in terms of over-promising in terms of this being two totally different games. Agreed. So it's not a huge problem. Then the question just becomes, how much do we enjoy that fundamental formula? And I have to say that I, this is probably my most disappointing experience with a Mind Clash product. I have been a big booster of Mind Clash. I've really enjoyed all their games. I think my previous least favorite game was probably Tricarion, which was their first one. I dinged it personally for being a little bit too narrow in terms of its necessity of getting all your ducks in a row before you get to go do the thing. And if a single thing went out of place, your entire plans would collapse. But I think that for me, Perseverance is now my least favorite Mind Clash offering. Which is not to say that I hated it. I just thought that it was kind of okay. But at the end of the day, when there's a half-hour rules explanation, your entire table is taken over by half a dozen different decks of cards and by a whole bunch of different sprawling components and sideboards up the wazoo and weird scoring calculations, and you've paid about 150 bucks for this thing, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And for me, broadly speaking, the answer is no. I agree. There are a few mechanisms that could have been trimmed off, I think, which we'll get into later. The overall theme, I very much enjoyed the sort of your, your, your ship gets wrecked up on this island and not only are you trying to survive because now you've been shipwrecked, but now these dinosaurs start attacking your people. So you have to defend typical, you know, sort of a post-apocalyptic, you can't help each other. You have to help your own people. You bust them into tribes or however you want to do it. And then number two sort of just continues on now that you've, you've solidified your position on this island. Now you're almost using the dinosaurs as a resource. You're going out, you're hunting them, you're, you're doing different things. So I really feel 
that the the theme of it really brings it to life for me anyway. So I I kind of like the theme. I'm not huge into dinosaurs really. I mean, I'm more into actual dinosaurs. Here they have made up dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs don't have a lot of personality. They're just this external threat. And indeed, how dinosaurs are dealt with is the biggest difference between episodes one and two. In episode one, it's kind of almost a tower defense scenario. And in episode two, it's more about tiling and putting out new worker spaces out in the middle of the dinos. And the dinos come and attack those spaces on the outside of the map. But this this leads to one of my, my criticisms of the game and one of the ways in which I think Perseverance could have been a lot better. When I first read the rules, I was hoping that there would be this dynamic interplay of being able to build up threat such that your opponents would be vulnerable and then forcing their plays or forcing them to react. Some sort of situation where you could engineer things such that you could exploit your opponent's carelessness and cause them to be exposed if they hadn't prepared themselves properly. In other words, hoping that like in classic zombie movie style because it, it's more or less the same kind of dynamic, that you could use the threat against your opponents. I never really saw that manifest very clearly in either episodes one or two, primarily because there are very strong disincentives for provoking an attack that will harm your opponents. You just lose a whole bunch of points if that happens. Yeah, I was about to say they, they put mechanism in, mechanisms in to stop you from doing that. If you cause an overrun... It uh, doesn't matter where it is. If you cause the overrun, you're going to get negative points based on how many dinosaurs are not defended against. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, part of this is a personal preference thing. And obviously you would have had to change other things about the game in order to make it work. I'm not suggesting you just remove that point penalty and then the game works. No, the game would spiral out of control in a variety of ways. It's just as a consequence, since a dinosaur attack would only ever happen under certain circumstances in both games, I never really felt like they were a threat because the dinosaur attack would happen in an almost deliberate fashion as a consequence of someone deliberately triggering it. And so in episode one, you don't start the attack unless you know it's going to go well. And in episode two, it was in, in point of fact even worse because it was just like a bonanza of points. You could cause an attack to go after your opponent. But the the benefits of being attacked by dinosaurs in episode two seem to be a windfall of points. Yeah, you go save your opponent. Like, go save him because, you know, you're going to be the benefit. Like, force them to attack him and then save him right afterwards. Like, it's like, oh, you're being attacked by dinosaurs that I forced into your area? Well, I will defend for you and then take all those points as well. Thank you. Right. Or very weird. Or even if you are trying to harm them and not necessarily make an opportunity for yourself, there were a number of occasions in episode two where somebody would deliberately provoke an attack by an opponent only to realize, not having properly internalized the scoring conditions, more on that in a moment, that the opponent on their turn is like, okay, well, I'll just go build up my military forces, go save my building, and thank you for handing me this massive benefit. In our games, like the first game we played, there was definitely some overrun being done because we weren't. 100% 100% comfortable with the rules yet. But after that, I agree ah. with you 100%. All of the dino attacks were 100% defended. Nothing was overrun. But I do feel that because you are placing settlements in these lanes in a certain order, and if there is an overrun, they're going to be attacked from the top down. And I feel as though with a little bit more plays that you can take a little bit of a loss, like cause the overrun, knowing that it'll kill the first couple settlements. And the benefit to that is much greater than the four points that you would lose for those two dinosaurs breaking through. Hmm. 
it's entirely possible that it is purely my conservatism that is making the game play out that, that way. If you're willing in a multiplayer game to take a point hit so that your opponent takes a point hit, maybe, but that just seems too much too much like A and B fight and C wins. No, no, I, I think it would be much more than a point hit, right? Because those settlements are what dictate not only how many votes that that area is going to get, but also the area majority. So if you could take out two of the villages, which is going to push you ahead, because we haven't really talked about it yet, but I'm sure we'll go over some other stuff, but that is all part of the majority. So if you could take out a couple of villages and that would also manipulate the votes for maybe a, a third party, then you're just, you're, you're hitting two players at the same time for multiple points, not just the two that you're going to lose. Possibly. Uh, Possibly. I, I didn't. I didn't see that dynamic emerge, but again, that could just be particular conservatism. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Setup was fantastic, nice and easy. They did a great job with the trays. I beg Everyone, your pardon. <laughs> hey, hey, I well, I think it was. We played multiple times, and every player has their own tray, and you just take out the parts you need. There was a whole tray just for uh, game one and a whole tray for game two. So you could leave most of the stuff in the box. There, it was a pain getting all the dinosaurs out, but other than that, we had no problem setting the game up. So first of all, I found that the whole notion of, of the trays dividing all the, you know, episode one content, episode two content to be just blatantly false. There's content spread out amongst variety of different trays and leaving a whole bunch of trays out. And the entire box is just chock-a-block of massive amounts of trays. It's not nearly as bad as, say, Wonderland's War, but there's just so many components and having to figure out which tray you need and which decks of cards and different cards need to be shuffled in different ways and just the sheer quantity of decks of cards in each evidence and sideboards up the wazoo. It's a sprawling mess. I didn't have quite that problem, but I can see what you're saying. Then the player count. I think the player count works at they did a good job of spacing out. I wouldn't play it with two because it introduces a whole new set of rules. But other than that, I think it, it equals out pretty good. I did play it with uh, two, and with two, it's a bit of a pain. Managing that third player isn't nearly as cumbersome as managing an AI, but it's obnoxious. And everyone has player powers, so that's halfway interesting. And the dice, so the, just the dice themselves, there is uh, a cost, say, if the die face doesn't show what you want, then you have to pay some victory points to turn it, and there is uh, a bunch of neutral dice, and everyone throws in one of their own color, and there are actions that you can take will, that will switch out the neutral dice for your own color, so the other players will take penalties if they use them. So it gives you sort of, you know, pushes more threat on them. Not only that, when we, when you calculate that area majority, the dice that are placed in those areas also count towards that. So more dice that you can convert over, the more chances that you are get the area majority. And it adds a different level of choice in as well. It's like, do I want to use this die, even though it's not showing what I want, but putting it into an area where I want it. So I get more presence there, stuff like that. Same thing. Do I use this red die? That's not my color and, and make sure they don't get it. So it sways that. Cause it's very tight there in majority because it's, you know, it's the, the, the spaces that allow you to put the settlements will fill quickly the only other things are the dice and your leader. So there's, you know, there is a way to lock down the board. So sometimes those dice can be very important. That was my favorite part of the game. And honestly, I thought it was really clever, really engaging, introduced a lot of those trade-offs because you have to manage the action you want to do, whether or not you're willing to lose some points in the process. 
whether or not you have the resources necessary to convert dice that wouldn't necessarily be your preferred results. And on top of that, it's all going to influence the area majority because that combination of worker placement and area majority is really satisfying to me, and I very much appreciated it. And then every time you put dice into an area, it's also going to populate dinosaurs in there. And it did happen a couple of times in our games where there were gambles being made. Uh, unfortunately, it was always successful, so it didn't cause an <laughs> overrun. But they said, okay, I'm going to roll this die. And if it comes up with two dinosaurs, then it's going to overrun. I'm going to lose points. But there is a gamble there because uh, you'll see where your settlements are. And do I want to add more dinosaurs to that area and risk being overrun? Or do I want to play somewhere else? So I, I kind of like that part. Yep. No, that part I enjoyed as well. Ultimately, the the, the biggest problem I had with the, uh, Perseverance, the Castaway Chronicles, was that the, the core elements that I like, I felt, were underemphasized at the expense of, of scoring that was often very, very indirect. Because there's a fair amount in Castaway Chronicles that's very straightforward. The way attacks are resolved is very straightforward, I think, in both games. The, the combat system, such as it is, is relatively straightforward. Units kill a certain number of dinosaurs, and raptors will eat them back, and etc., etc. But the scoring is often very, very indirect. As a contrast to the area majority scoring. The area majority scoring is relatively simple to execute, although there's a little bit weird thing about whether you want to convert to votes or get resources. That's a, a bit strange, but it makes sense eventually. And it's it's a, such a high-stakes event that it's worth internalizing how it works. But a lot of the other scoring, for example, there are these advisors. And in the advisors, first you compete for area majority so as to be able to score them. And they score based on specific combination of resources that you happen to have. And so there's this level of indirection. You have to worry about how to get influence on them. And then that's to satisfy a certain recipe, which you may or may not have internalized on top of that. You know, you deploy soldiers to kill dinosaurs and you might figure, oh, well, killing dinosaurs will get me points, right? It's like, well, not quite, because after the fight, what happens is you then have to trade in other resources to be able to score for the thing you've already killed according to this list that's on a separate board and that was one of the mistakes that I made in my early plays and I think is going to be a big trip up for a lot of players especially in episode one you might figure oh I will go and contribute to defense of the colony this will reward me with points it will only reward you with points if you are able to make the necessary purchases after the fight is over and that can be super strangely obtuse, despite the fact that it's just one extra level of elaboration. And I think it's just an example of one of the ways in which the excess of the game didn't quite speak to its strengths. I agree, because those two resources that you used to pay for those uh, bonuses were sometimes very hard to get. They did do one interesting system in there where three of those uh, bonuses would be covered with a, a a token so those wouldn't be available when that area was overrun so the you know there'd still be battle rewards but if it was an overrun battle then you wouldn't get them but like we said overruns hardly ever happen so they never Agreed. really came into play but still i thought it was an interesting sort of system and minor gripe i'm i'm very i want to raise this just because i'm very curious if it happened to you one of those two resources which I heard you refer to on the stream as Starfleet, because it is, is indeed... Yeah, there's either Federation or there's Wakanda Forever. Yeah, yeah. Federation resource, because it's just the symbol of the Federation in Star Trek. I had such a difficult time 
getting that stupid metal marker out of the recessed boards. I would literally, every time, and I have nails. I don't have very long nails, but I have enough of nails. I can pick up cards from tables in many cases where people can't. I had to take a card to slip it under, not just any card. It couldn't be a reference card. The reference cards were too thick. The reference cards couldn't do it. I had to take one of the, one of the playing cards and slide it under the metal symbol just so I could lift it out of the track. Yeah, we had the. If you watch the, if you watch the replay, you can see we. I had the exact same problem. Ugh. So two of us on my side of the table, we would just put the tokens in upside down, so they wouldn't actually go into the nice recess board. Oh, good call, good call. And then we realized after the fact on the other side of our player boards, there was no recess, so you could just it was just a flat surface, and you could just play on that, which may or may not be your thing. Yeah, I. So I raised this again largely because I was curious, but also because I think it's worth. I've been trying to think a little bit more about how expensive this hobby is lately. And all in all, I'm not going to make apologies for the fact that this is a very, very expensive hobby. But if you're going to be paying 150 bucks for a fully decked out thing that claims to be two games when really it's just kind of one and a half, and it has a lot of these components, some of which aren't necessarily functional in the best ways some of which are redundant some of which don't necessarily work and on top of that it's you know not necessarily going to set the world on fire like look when you're paying 35 bucks for another euro game and it turns out to be eh, it's, it's a pretty okay euro game that's one thing when you're paying 150 bucks for the next euro game and you end up reacting to it the white dead say it's okay i you know i i don't really hate it but i don't really it comes comes together and i wish it did some other things differently I think that's a bit of a problem. And stuff like that, I think, is problematic for the hobby in much more uh, much more than we might give it credit. Agreed. All right. I'm going to get back to the theme because we've been talking about fighting the dinos. And in all the games I played, I, I, I did it completely different because not mm-hmm. only are there two different kinds of soldiers you can put out, there's traps, there's walls, there are... There are your leaders that can go there. They all do, you know, take and take certain number of hits and block certain number of dinosaurs. All that puzzly part was all very interesting. Uh, and it was also the, straightforward. I mean, that part I was able to yes. internalize very, very well. Like the actual part of, you know, placing your workers and how that influenced Mary Majority and how your settlements worked into that and play, and how dino attacks worked, that I was able to internalize in five hot seconds. That next step, though, so I've got this pile of dinosaurs that I've killed through the various tools available to me. And it's like, oh, this clearly means I'm doing well, right? Oh, I don't have the specific combination of resources to turn these dinosaur kills into actual victory points. I guess I get nothing out of this fight. That's interesting. That happened to me many times. Yeah, I I have I seem to be having this this gripe more than usual. Number of resources, seven different kinds of resources in this game. Little excessive. Scraps, so stories, food, valor, safeguard, followers, votes, all of these different kinds of resources all for different things. It just seems like a lot. I also feel that the iconography was not particularly excellent. Now, granted, it's a complicated game and it tried to represent as many things as it could iconographically. But there were a couple of occasions where I knew from the rulebook what the effect was supposed to be. And I was looking at the card saying, but what does that icon mean? And I couldn't reconcile the two, even though I already knew what the effect was. So, again, leading to a sense of difficult to use product at the end of the day, which is fundamentally my criticism. Okay game, difficult to use product, overblown, and not particularly interesting and exciting, I think. So there was another interesting puzzle that I enjoyed 
figuring out, and that is sort of because it it ties in with the battling. It's sort of cycling your soldiers because as soon as that battle's over, they come back, and then you have to figure out where the next next battle's going to be so you can deploy them again in hopes that you have the right resources to get points this time. But then there's also your leader. So your leader can be deployed with the troops, but can also as a secondary action, because you do one primary, one secondary, it can as a secondary action be deployed into an area and get that act, get another action. So potentially on that turn, you'll get two actions in the row, which is infinitely powerful. On a side note, one of the benefits, one of the battle bonuses you can get is to return your leader, which is amazing as well. But anyway, that sort of puzzle of when to permanently deploy your leader for the two actions, how to cycle your troops, because not only do your troops are used for fighting the dinosaurs, there's these patrols that you can do. It's another action you could take. You take a patrol card and then automatically at the end of uh, your turn, you can cycle through the patrols if you have enough troops and you'll get benefit from that as well. The painful part about that is yet what we talked about extra components that I don't think were necessary. You had these two decks of cards and depending on what troops you sent, you cycled through these cards, yet these patrol cards were huge. All of this information could have been on the patrol card. Some sort of system where if you sent this number of troops, you get these resources and then it would cut down a ton on extra cards, a ton on time and would have been much better in my opinion. I think you're right. That was also one of my disappointments leading to episode two. So I played episode one. And I thought, well, maybe episode one is kind of like the training mode. And episode two is, is like a slightly more elaborated game, but elaborated in a good way. And that was one of the aspects of episode one that I kind of enjoyed. The cycling of the troops, managing the timing of how and when to deploy them. In episode two, I found that the troops just cycled too quickly. They were in and out immediately. Since battles were instantaneous and you didn't have this buildup of threat, it was just, oh, I'm going to send these six soldiers out to kill the dinosaurs. Oh, they're right back. Oh, great. I guess I'll send them somewhere else next turn. Yeah, they they hardly ever died. At the end of every turn, you get to stand them back up again and, and they're immediately ready to play. Like I said, I only got to play it once, so I didn't really get to see how that played out. But sure. I, I agree with you. Yes, and admittedly, I have more experience with episode one than I do with episode two. So again, all of this could be chalked up to my not having quite yet internalized the systems and the risk-reward. But again, I don't know that that necessarily is much of a defense of the game when after having gone back to episode one several times, I'm still not at the point where I can quite internalize how to get from A to B. Uh, because again, the the scoring is at a little bit of a, a level of indirection, and honestly, the systems that were clean weren't emphasized as much to my satisfaction over the over the systems that were a little less clean. And they do pile on some more complication in part two because you, your player board is much more extensive. You have these lists and lists of all these different uh, what do they call them officer perks that you get to choose from. Uh, they even have more resources. Let's, you know, because seven resources wasn't enough. We'll bump that up to eight resources now. Yep. Um, and these are perks that you will have to look up all the time and will frequently forget to execute. And and just to add on to the fact that these two games are so similar, there's there's like a, a couple of mistakes in the rule book where they've just cut and pasted from number one to number two because yep. they refer to patrol cards instead of adventure cards because yep. the rules are exactly the same. So that sort of doubles down on the fact that it is so similar anyway. It's true. It's true. And there were a couple of niggling typos in actual components as well, specifically the game tiles to lay out in episode two. Not a huge deal, but uh, not exactly ideal. 
I did enjoy all my planes of both games. I like the fact that there's very many strategies. At first, I thought you really needed to get those votes because the 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 huge points from those votes, I thought, swayed the game. But in the last number one that we played, I purposely didn't win any votes. And I was within five points of the leader. So, so I enjoyed that part because if you play into your, your leader power and, and sort of cascade that into other, other ways to get points, I like when systems do that. I would have liked more focus. And as I said, I really liked the way area majority interspersed with the action selection mechanism. And so if votes had been more consequential, if there had been more emphasis on the area majority, I would have found that satisfying. If there had been less of a degree of obtuseness between killing dinosaurs and getting points, less of a weird sense of, well, you know, instead of just supplying soldiers, you can build a wall. And then when you build the wall, you roll a die. And that's how many followers you're going to get from building the wall. It's like, okay... And traps as well. I mean, yeah, all the bits about killing dinosaurs were fine. It's just translating that into the, your end goal was always just one step removed, one degree of complication too much. And to be entirely frank and to put all my cards on the table, uh, I really find it unpleasant to talk about games like this, where everything's fine, it all works, it's all there, but it's just too much. There's too much iconography, there's too much looking up. It's not worth the amount of mental effort you're going to put in. Because if you're going to if you're going to have a rule book that's 30 plus pages, if you're going to take that much setup, if you're going to have that much wrestling with components, I want some payoff. I want some narrative payoff. I want some mechanical payoff. And quite frankly, Perseverance was always just one step too shy. For me, to compare it to another Mind Clash game, Anachrony is very much on the cusp for me. I will play Anachrony. And I like it. I like it for the theme. I like it for the execution. I like it for the components. It is just barely worth its two hours and its obtuseness. Perseverance is just on the other side of that worthiness for me in terms of cost, mentally, socially, and economically. I agree. There's a lot of systems there that on paper seem like they're they're going to work, but in in plain do not. Like you said, with the with each air majority, you win this token. And then there's this you secretly yes. choose. Right, but you know how many votes everyone has, and I know they they feel that you're going to do this risk thing where you might risk some votes because you know the other players can't beat you, so they're not going to take votes. So you might as well risk some of your votes to get benefits. But you're not going to do that. Why would you risk 21 points over getting six points? Right. So, like I so said, it's in... just, it's just another opportunity to count. It's another opportunity to count exactly. up how many votes everyone has. And so it's just another level of calculation added on top of what could have been a perfectly clean and perfectly satisfactory Iron Majority contest. Exactly. So, I mean, in short, based on the publication history of the publisher, I am pretty disappointed. Their next game that they're going to release is Voidfall by David Surtse and Nigel Buckle. I very much enjoy Imperium, but at the same time... Eh, David Surte has a bit of a mixed history. By the way, parenthetically, uh, just as a final note about Perseverance, there is a solo mode. It's got a 30-page rulebook. I tried it. I couldn't get full a full through a full game. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you have two AI opponents to wrestle with new components to manage and priorities to Oh yeah, it's a whole thing. I couldn't I it was basically at the point where I was spending 90% of my mental effort just trying to resolve what they were doing, and so that every time I got to my turn, it was like 
approaching the game table anew. You know how in an asynchronous game, you get the notification, it's your turn again for the first time in a week? That's what it felt like. It's like, what was going on again? Oh yeah, dinosaurs. So uh, some people love it. Some people love system mastery. Some people love being able to just internalize how a system works like that. They love flowcharts and they love figuring out AI systems. I'm not one of those players. And so naturally, I, I wasn't shocked. As I said, David Surtse's solo designs, Anachrony and Imperium are exceptions, but generally speaking, I do not enjoy them. And I find that he can complicate a simple game with the solo systems. A, a paradigmatic example of that being Blitzkrieg World War II in 20 minutes, which when you're playing the solo mode by David Surtse is Blitzkrieg World War II in seven hours. But that's, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. So that being said, Mark, did you read, there is a whole rule book as well, not only the solo book, but there is a whole book that ties game one and two together. Did you get a chance to read that? I really wanted to, I just did not have time. I didn't have time to try it, but I did read it. It seems to be based primarily on achievements, just a, 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 a flow, a tableau of achievements that are available and you claim them by doing specific things. Uh, it seems potentially vaguely promising, not in the sense of a th robust campaign. It doesn't feel like you're really like progressing, it didn't seem. But on the other hand, it could be just that one extra thing that you constantly forget to do or constantly forget to check. I don't know. It's hard to say. As I say, I didn't try it. But if you like Perseverance, it's another way to play Perseverance. For sure. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find our website at SoWrongGames.com and all our contact information is at SoWrongGames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for joining us and we hope very much to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Welcome, dear listeners, to Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of His Grace, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent, Duke of Diesel, Esquire OBE. This week we will be discussing The Kid Detective. Walker, what did you think of The Kid Detective? I really enjoyed it, Mark. I think there was two very pivotal moments in the movie. Maybe you'll Are you going to spoil disagree. everything again, the way you always do? Yes. Um... <laughs> If you haven't watched the movie, please just watch the movie and turn it off right now <laughs> before Walker pivotal, spoils everything. Pivotal like first, it's of a all, really though, good movie, and Walker's going to spoil it for you. It's really good. Before we go any further, Mark, because I didn't want to oh, Google geez. it, I didn't want to ruin it. Sure, because this the could, way you're about to do it for your listeners. <laughs> this could 100 percent be a Shyamalan movie, where where something completely different is happening in the background. And if I rewatched it, I might be able to see things where, you know, he really became the principal or, you know, some weird <laughs> alternate thing happening in the background. And like when the movie was over, I was like, does that final scene, like, does that mean that this is all tying back into because the secretary was so weird and their interaction was odd? And I, and the, I disagree. With, I, I agree with you in the sense that the reveal is sufficiently pivotal that it felt a bit like a Shyamalan movie. I disagree in the sense, though, because the themes 
First of all, the themes of the movie tie into the reveal. The idea of perpetual adolescence, of not feeling your age, of feeling irrelevant and undervalued and ignored, at the same time possibly being worthy of being ignored and undervalued and being irrelevant. The notion of uh, what it is to be accomplished. Uh, all, all these kinds of thematic elements that are interspersed throughout the movie, sometimes in funny ways, sometimes in darkly comic ways. Uh, Shyamalan movies don't tend to do that. The reveal is just tend, like, this thing happens. And I mean, I, I like a good reveal as much as the next person. But here, the reason why I like the reveal so much is because of how thematically resonant it is. All right, so the two pivotal moments was at the one, <laughs> was at the one point where he said, where it was all about perception, how he perceives yes. himself and how the world perceives him or how exactly. he thinks the world perceives him, right? Yes. This is something that that I love, you know, internalizing myself on a constant basis and oh, yeah. how I try to, you know, guide other people through. It's like, I know you think this is what's going on, but can you not see it from, you know, yep. someone else's point of view and how you see that? And it, it just resonates to the whole movie. It's like how, like I said, how his secretary looks, how all his early cases were solved. It's how, yep. how exactly, you know what I mean? It's just, it's such a great motif throughout the whole and, movie. And the and juxtaposition, I, the juxtaposition of his incredible <laughs> intellect and perception and his boneheaded mistakes, right? He does this over and over where he like makes these intuitive leaps that are actually genuinely kind of impressive, despite the fact that he's such a schlubby loser. Uh, but at the same time, he constantly makes these same boneheaded errors over and over. And you're exactly right, I think, to identify that as being fundamental to the human condition. Everyone can relate to that. We all feel like half genius, half morons, I think. I think that's just part of what it is to be an adult. And I think the kid detective captures that beautifully. Adam Brody, like, by the way, is brilliant in this movie. I, I, he's always been like a bit player and a lot of other things, usually an asshole. Uh, but I, I think he's so good. And then the second one, like we've already talked about, is at the very end. And it's so good because it can be so many different things to different people. How so? Well, I just mean, I just think to me it was it was just the relief, right? He can finally show this relief in front of his parents that he had this constant stress on him from the town thinking that he should be the one that solved that original case. The fact that the fact that he finally, because he, because he even says just before he goes in and talks to his parents, it's like, this is now real. This is now all on me because I've told them I'm going to solve this case. And, you know, I've, I, I did it. I did it. And he could, he's in front of the two people that he can show this emotion to. It's finally all over. Other people could see it as uh, he's mentally young and can't handle that kind of truth or, you know what I mean, he's, he, his emotions aren't developed, he's immature or, uh, I don't know, I came, I came up with a bunch of different things, but I, that's what I like about it. I think to different people, it could be different things. It's fascinating to me because to me at the end of the movie, it's not relief that he feels. It's, it's dread. It's complete soul-crushing dread because it's not a manifestation of his success. It's a manifestation of his failure. It's, it, it's kind of a culmination of his appreciating his own uselessness and impotence. At the same time that he finally gets his reputation back, he finally gets his credibility back, and he is finally hailed as a success again, and his business actually exists again, 
he because all this time he thought he'd he, he'd already come to terms with his failure and he thought that she was dead but it turns out that it, it wasn't a single moment of failure it was two decades of failure he had been it had been a consistent level of failure and his success such as it is is utterly hollow because nobody wins and nobody emerges clean and so it's simultaneously that recognition and simultaneously the recognition that his entire career trajectory was a sham it was an act it, he was put up as a sap by the villain and so it, it was so when he breaks down in tears at the end of the film I don't see that as relief at all. I see it as a fundamental recognition of his own uselessness and impotence. That's fascinating. Yeah, that was the that was the other story I came up with, the fact that he blamed himself for that girl being in such pain for yeah. so long. Yeah. And the fact that the principal, you know, played him and yes. pretty well so totally. caused caused that whole thing. Like 100%. It enabled the principle to get away with it type thing so yeah yeah yeah, yeah completely and the, the the last thing i want to note about how well made this movie is canadian production by the way cancon uh is almost everything in the kid detective is set up and payoff set up and payoff little blood breadcrumbs that you don't even realize are being set up like sometimes movies are very clumsy it's like something is introduced like oh yeah that's going to come back later but like just as one example the detail of the kind of soda pop she drank when she was operating. It's like, I paid her in soda pop. And it's like, oh, it's a cute detail, right? It's like the riff on on uh, Encyclopedia Brown. And there she is drinking grape soda pop. And then, but for whatever reason, I'm not a particularly attentive movie watcher. But still, at the end of the movie, when, when he sees that soda pop in the fridge of the principal, you immediately know what's going on. And you immediately make that connection. That's because the movie is so well-directed and so well-paced and so well-staged that you're able to get those elements of connection. It's, it's, it's a really, sometimes, again, like a Shyamalan movie, it's like you watch it for the plot, you watch it for the, 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 the trick that he plays for you. And I think there's a lot to appreciate there in The Kid Detective, but also it's just really well-done filmmaking. I did mean to go back. Does he have a little sister at the beginning of the movie? I can't remember. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back. Well, because I'm trying to figure out the secretary. I really am. What, what about the secretary? Like, why on he, earth would he keep her employed? Oh, like, the goth secretary? She, oh. Yeah, yeah. I like, think it's just... Does an, she own... It's just so <laughs> odd. I think it's just another... It's just another possibility of an example of a mirror. Uh, like, even his own employee thinks he's a useless piece of crap. I think it's just another example, possibility of that. I, I thought maybe it was his, his, his sister, and that's why he employs her, and that's why he was worried about her when she wouldn't answer the phone, and that's the whole reason why she's still there, because good lord. <laughs> well, it's not like he could do any better, right? Like, who else could he employ? It's true. I mean, he doesn't have any money. Nobody takes him seriously anymore. Even, even the ice cream guy thinks he's a, he's a piece of crap. No, you're right, but you're right that there might be something more going on there. I mean, that relationship was was kind of a bit of a throwaway but but there's a little bit there again yeah so, like so, don't get me wrong i don't want to come off like there's something wrong with there's nothing wrong yeah, with yeah. her it's yeah, just yeah. the way she constantly treated him that's yes, that's yes. what i'm saying but that's just why like, on earth since so much of the movie keep is her about around. the way we view yeah. ourselves and the disconnect between the esteem we have for ourselves and the way other people treat us and whether that's justified and having notions of self-doubt she's just another manifest not that the movie's short of them Almost every character in the movie exists to doubt Adam Brody. <laughs> That's uh, everything other than his client. 
Uh, also, yeah, I, right, like right down, right down to like the geeks moving drugs and the drug dealers being nice. You know what I mean? It's yeah. this constant flip flop of perception. It's yeah. really good. Yeah, absolutely. He solved over two hundred mysteries. Over two hundred. <laughs> also, uh, brilliant. And, th- and 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 none of them were murder until three of them were. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and an excellent guest performance by a white Chrysler LeBaron. Yeah, that that car that they were driving around. Yeah, that was dope. Well, the uh, short skirt, long jacket by Cake has an excellent reference to a white Chrysler LeBaron. Anyway, well, that's the thing. That's why I, I that that was also adding to my my feeling that there was something going on. Right. I, the the thing was that I figured out that it was her, her daughter halfway through the movie. Really. For whatever, yeah, for whatever reason, I was sure. just like, okay, well, you know, the age tricks out and, you know, this whole relationship, you know, figures out. But I I didn't understand, you know, like, was she still alive or was she, like, did she have the kid before she disappeared? You know, anyway, I yeah. didn't I didn't piece it all together, but I was like, that's why I thought that there was this other story. Like, did that girl even exist? Was, mm. you know, was it, you know what I mean? Because they're driving such a weird car around and, you know what I mean? I thought, like, is this going to be like some weird sure. plot twist at the end? Like, anyway. Well, but that, that watching it, I, I've watched it twice now. The second time I watched it, when he looks at the picture of her parents, he's like, are these your parents? And it's two people skiing. Like what they both died in the yeah. skiing accidents, like and he says exactly they're very photogenic. <laughs> it's like it came with the frame, you idiot. <laughs> or like it was kind of from some magazine. Yeah, in hindsight, it's like you didn't catch that mark, you're a moron. But again, it's just like the movie's weird enough that that could have actually happened straight in the universe of the movie, but it's just yes. another breadcrumb that it's leaving around, you know, set up, payoff, set up, payoff. Uh I'm glad you enjoyed it, Walker. So good. Solid movie. One of the best of the past few years, I think. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for another installment of Masterpiece Theater. We hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.